If you would turn in your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1. And we finish our series out of uh, this incredible chapter where we have looked at the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, as I told you, this was supposed to be an eight-week series. It turned out to be a 15-week series. And uh, we're finishing up right at the end of the year, looking at what Paul has told us about the goodness, the greatness of God and Christ and the gospel, and then the bad, that the wrath of God is being revealed, and then, of course, the ugliness of man's sin. And today we'll be looking at that final chapter of that ugliness of sin that we will see in Romans 1, uh, verses 28 through 32. Now next week, for those that want to know, you'll see in your uh, bulletins uh, this week that we start a four-week series uh, next uh, week on the uh, mandate of biblical preaching. I want to spend four weeks, not a long series, four weeks talking about the importance of doing, in fact, what I'm doing right now and why I preach the way I do and why it is so important for us to elevate the Word of God as the foremost uh, part of our worship service and a part of any ministry that we do. And we're going to be calling that series, Just Do It, meaning just preach the Word like Paul told Timothy. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next, uh, it'll be five weeks. We have the missions conference smack dab in the middle of that. So look forward to those as we start the new year. And then of course, We'll be going to a series after that. I'm almost done with my year uh, preaching calendar. Uh, it was my goal before the end of the year to have all the messages all planned out for the year, and I'm, I'm almost there. I need one more day, and the Lord has given me that one more day to have it done, and that was my resolution for the year. Now, for the last month, we have spent time focused in on a lot of ugly things. We've talked about immorality in the area of uh, the sexual realm. We've talked about homosexuality. And now we deal with sin in a general sense. Paul is going to be telling us today about God's uh, anger and wrath towards man's downward spiral towards sin. And we see the consequences that come from that this morning. So I would ask that you would stand as we read from God's Word this morning. As we look to the text, starting in verse 18 and then going through to verse 32. Listen to Paul's final indictment of humanity in God's written word. It says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, 
God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Our text for the morning. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have been become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Let's pray. Father God, we come to a text that is an indictment of sinful humanity. For most of us here who have trusted You as our Savior, this is what we once were. And for those who still are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, You are describing the totality of, of man's sin and our disregard for your, your Father, our Father in Heaven. So Lord, as we go to this text, this is not a chipper text. This isn't one that, that uh, is, is altogether happy. For Lord, we have been indicted with terrible sin. And Lord, we are grieved by what our sin has done. So Lord, uh, sear our hearts this morning. Remind us of what You've saved us from. Lord, bring to our attention the sin that is still before us and the judgment that is coming for all who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. These are hard truths for us to understand, hard truths to preach. But Lord, we preach Your Word, and Your Word is true. So we rejoice in that, that You have spoken. And we rejoice in the fact that earlier in the text, Paul says that a righteousness has been revealed from heaven. And Lord, I'm so thankful for that righteousness because it is by that very righteousness that Your wrath is turned away, that Your judgment is cast aside, and that the love, mercy, and grace of Almighty God is given through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's why we honor You this morning. That is why we praise Your name because You are the God who did not leave us in a place of sin, but You brought us to a place to be Your sons and daughters. For You receive the glory and the honor. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We don't have to spend much time watching the news to know that we live in a world that is full of trouble. It's not very hard for us to uh, turn on CNN and to watch for just a short amount of time to see that the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. Of course, we all watched with uh, great concern as we see a, a woman leader in Pakistan whose only desire seemingly was to bring peace and prosperity to her nation, to have terrorists assassinate her. We see that many times. We see the reports of murder, the reports of rape, the reports of all kinds of terrible injustices that take place at the hands of one human being towards another. 
In fact, as I was thinking through some of the heinous things that our world sees, things like genocide, war, murder, sexual predators, lies, cheating, beatings, stealings, fraud, and so yet so many more, there were a couple stories that came to mind. Two stories that were so horrific and were so vile, I was, I was told that probably wasn't even the best case to talk about the details of them because of what took place in the murder of three people. And this happens, and this doesn't happen in a third world country. This happened in uh, Middle Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee. That something so heinous would take place. But you know, the amazing thing is, is many times we become so... Um, prone to just kind of move on from those things. We hear about missing people. We hear about people who have lost their lives and we say, well, you know, that's just another story. I wonder what the weather's going to be like for the city of Chicago. And we move on from hearing about a a missing mother of three kids in Bolingbrook, Illinois, not far from us, suburban Chicago. And then we know of Plainfield, a a woman named Lisa Stebick who has lost her life uh, most likely and is not found again in suburban Chicago. How about the family that had murder in the lives in Oswego? Who can forget a father uh, killing his family in Oswego where some of us call our own home? We live in a world that is full of sin. And Paul begins this, uh, begins the end of this chapter, at the last half of this chapter, talking about why these heinous things happen. We dealt with the immorality uh, a couple weeks ago. We also dealt with the issue of uh, homosexuality, uh, another level of immorality, two weeks ago. Now Paul says that's not it. It's not just in the area of immorality uh, in the sexual realm or the physical realm, but it also happens in all types of sin. Why? Why do we do these things? Why do men do the evil things that we do? Humanity has done three things. Paul says, first of all, we suppress the truth. We see that in verses uh, 18 to 22. We have suppressed the truth. That means that we said we didn't want it. We didn't want to have anything to do with it. God says, here is the truth of righteousness that I've revealed to you. And we say, get that garbage out of our way. The next thing we did is we substituted the truth. We say, we don't want your truth, God. We don't want your righteousness. So what happens? We say, we're going to go find our own stuff. And then the Bible says what we've done is we've traded the Creator God for created things. Instead of worshiping a God who is infinitely greater than anything that this world has, we start to say, no, God, I don't want to worship you. I will worship other people. I will worship animals. I will worship created things, even reptiles and birds, before I'll worship you, the Creator God. We've substituted the truth. In fact, it says that we have substituted the truth for a lie. That God is God, and we don't believe that to be the case, so we fall prey to what the devil and the world says, that we are our own God, and we can do all that we want to do, and don't need a Creator to tell us what we should or shouldn't do. Finally, we've soiled the truth. The truth has been revealed. And what do we do? We say, we don't want you, God. We don't want your truth. We're going to go find our own truth. And in doing so, we took what was perfect and what was good, the truth of Almighty God, and we've taken it. And the Bible says we have exchanged the natural for the unnatural. And we saw that within the sexual realm. But now we see it within our own realm uh, in a myriad of sins that are dealt with today. In fact, the Apostle... Um, 
Paul speaks of 23 different sins in this text. And I'm going to spend 10 minutes looking at each and every one of them. Just kidding. Some of you believe I would be telling the truth in that. 23 sins. And I want to spend some time looking at them without looking at every one of them. We know most, if not all, of what those words mean. And we know what they involve. But what we see is a comprehensive representation of who we are in our sin. Man is dead in his trespasses and sin. This last week, I'm not a science fiction fan, but we have a lot of family in town, and all the guys said, we're going to go see a movie. And uh, I was wanting to go see National Treasure again. I loved that movie. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Great movie. He wanted to, my friends and fr- family wanted to go see I Am Legend with Will Smith. I'll tell you what, that is the craziest movie I've ever seen in my life. But I got done and I was so excited because there was an illustration out of that movie that was so important. The premise of this incredibly weird movie is that we find the cure for cancer. And the opening clip is a newscast where a woman says we have found the cure to cancer and we found it in the virus that causes measles. And so what we're going to do is inoculate the whole world with measles again, and that will cure them of cancer. And they've had a uh, 10,000 different people that have been cured from all types of cancer, and that's what they're going to do. The problem is, is the measles uh, virus or whatever it is, I'm no doctor, it uh, mutates. And it creates this terrible, horrific um, uh, new strain of viruses that creates either death, or it creates people to become these mongrel individuals, these beasts. And Will Smith, the, the actor in this movie, the one that stars in it, is the only one left on Long Island. And here he is involving himself for three years all by himself, and he's one of the scientists that was given the job of trying to find a cure. At the end of the movie, the beasts come out, they find him, and I'm not trying to scare you, it's PG-13, anybody wanting to know if I'm watching rated R movies? PG-13, and by the time I look, I'm 31, that's 13 upside down, inside out. What happens? What happens? They come after him and are attacking Will Smith. The one who had the cure. Because at that point, Will Smith finds the cure. And he's yelling. They're beating down this bulletproof wall, trying to get to him. Hundreds of these people who have this terrible disease that is causing them great amounts of problem and pain. And Will Smith, at the top of his lungs, is yelling, I have the cure. I have the cure. I can make you better. And what do they do? They don't listen. Even though he had the cure... They kill him. Sorry if you wanted to go see the movie. I saved you $10. There's boxes in the back, by the way. And I got done, and first of all, I said, I spent $10 on that. But then I thought, what a reminder of humanity. Here's God. And God says, I have a cure. I have a cure. You don't have to live the way you are. You don't have to do the things that you're doing. You're sick, but there's a cure. But you know what we do? We attempt to kill God. We do everything in our power, try to stop Him from being who He is. And that's what Paul is talking about today. Even though the cure is there, even though we have the opportunity to be different people, 
To not have to have that wage of death, uh, a wage of sin that is death hanging over us, what we can do is turn to Almighty God and accept the cure that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about. Paul gives the good news in verses 1 through 16, and then he says why the good news is so good in the last 16 to 18 verses of Romans chapter 1. There are three things that I want to look at this morning because we learn from the prophet something that we must always remember. Prophet Jeremiah tells us these words on why men do the evil that they do. He says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I am so glad that from a human perspective that Jeremiah said there was no cure. And yet he would know later on in his life he would be able to write in one of his uh, prophetic writings that Jesus Christ would come. And Jesus Christ would be that cure. The cure that we could no longer take care of in our own way. Paul gives two reasons and then a result this morning. The first reason why we do the things that we do is because it involves this evil that we do, involves our embracing of certain decisions that are unholy. Certain decisions that are unholy. Look at verse 21 for a moment. Look at what Paul says. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says in verse 21, we dealt with this some time ago, what Paul says is he says we made a conscious decision. We made a decision that God was not going to be our God, and as a result of that, our thinking became darkened and, and futile. What that means is God created us to think a certain way. God created us to be certain types of people. And what happens? Because of our rebellion, because of the rebellion, first of all, in the garden, all the way through to today, our rebellion continues to say, we don't want God, we don't desire God in our lives, and as a result of that, the very thing that we were created to be, we've abandoned. Paul says that we've chosen to turn our backs on God. Now look at what it says next. In verse 28 it tells us, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not be done. In this verse it first uses the term furthermore. Well, what does furthermore mean? Paul is letting a, um, if you will, a judicial uh, context here. I told you he's like a prosecuting attorney. What is Paul trying to do? Paul is trying to stake a claim that humanity is sinful. So he's in a courtroom proceeding. Let's say this is it. The judge is sitting up there, and I am the Apostle Paul. My job, as what he was doing, was to say, hey, all these people that are sitting out here, they're evil just like I am evil. I'm going to give you the reasons why they're evil. And he starts with this word in this text, furthermore. Well, what does that mean? It's shedding some light on a certain issue. In verse 27, look at what it says. Even though man has been told, and in fact seen that the due penalty for their perversion, all the things that Paul has talked about, perversion, anything that goes against what God has said to be true, man pursues those things. God says, okay, if you go that way, then there's a due penalty. So what is Paul saying? Paul says, even in light 
as they've gone their own way, God has put these uh, landmarks that have said, stop, turn around. Stop, go the other way. Do not enter. He set these landmarks that say, if you do this, danger ahead. And what happens? Man keeps walking right through them. Even though we see the warning signs, even though we see uh, the guideposts that say we should not go the direction that we're going, even though we see what it causes us, we keep walking that way. Look at what it says. Furthermore, they did not think it worthwhile. When we turn our back on God, something takes place. Even though we know that that uh, turning our back is going to bring punishment, is going to bring pain and suffering, we turn. Why? Because we make a decision. Humanity made a decision. But this decision wasn't just something that was flippantly made. But it first of all involved a systematic review of God. Write it in your outlines. There was a systematic review of God and His worth. The answer is seen and not think it worthwhile. This phrase in the Greek involved, was used for the process of choosing a, politi- uh, I'm sorry, a politician whom you would vote for. And what it was is you would look at a politician and you'd say, well, I like this about them and I don't like that about them, but the good outweighs the bad, so I'm going to choose to pay my allegiance to them. And what this word is saying in the Greek is saying that they looked at God and what they did was is they began to see all that God had going for them. Well, He's good at this and He's good at that, but there's some areas we don't like about God. And so what do they do? The best way to illustrate it beyond that is to, in essence, look at your TV and remember what American Idol looked like. Because what would happen is, is just like musicians would come in at American Idol, there would be some judges. And what we have done as sinful humanity is place God as the performer. And we are at the stage where we are sitting behind the table like Paul Abdul and Simon, whatever his name, last name is, and we sit there and God does all His things. And we sit there and say, God, show me what You've got. Show me Your best song. Show me Your best act. Do what You do best. And God shows. How does He show? Through creation. Remember what Paul says? They saw it through creation. And God reveals Himself in creation. And He shows humanity. He says, look at all that I've made for you. All the works of my hands. Look at all that is going on in the realm of science. I've created that because I'm Creator God. And you know what we do as sinful humanity? We say, sorry, you're not going to the next round. You're not worthwhile. And what we've done is we've said, you don't meet our criteria. And that's what humanity has done. We say to God, He is not worth our time. What an amazing indictment of our sin. God proves His goodness through creation, His goodness of all that He's revealed, the righteousness that has been revealed from heaven, and we look at Him and say, we can do better. We'll find something better. Sorry, thanks. Maybe next time. Maybe find us next time we're in town. But it leads to something else. Not only does it lead to a review of God, but next we see that it also leads to a rejection of God. It says, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. We do this review of God, and He is found wanting in our eyes. So what do we do? We reject Him. We go our own way. We leave God in the dust. 
But it's even worse than that. The text tells us we literally ignore Him. It's not that we don't know that He's there. Please hear me. It's not that the world doesn't know that God is there. The Bible tells us that even our consciences bear witness of Almighty God and that creation is crying out to us that there is a God. But we ignore it. We say, you know what, I know there's a God, but you remember I did that review of Him and He was found wanting, so I'm going to go find something better. It's literally the best way to illustrate this is what we do with spam on our computer. A pop-up comes up on our computer and it's about some stupid thing that we have no desire to want or desire for Tupperware or you name all the things that you get spam for. And all these different things. And what do we do? We say, that's not worth my time. I know it's there. I can see it as plain as day. But what do we do with it? We take our mouse, we drag the mouse over to that little file, and we throw it into something so cleanly called the recycle bin. And that's what we do with God. God comes. He reveals Himself. We say, you know what? i got better things to do. I don't want to take up my hard drive with you, God, because if I agree to have you in my life, it's going to mean some things, and my hard drive is going to slow down. My party life is going to slow down. The way I do things isn't going to be as, as what I wanted it to be. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it, I'm going to remove you, and I'm going to throw you in the trash. For we did not think it worthwhile to retain a knowledge of God. So what does God do? There's a settled reaction by God. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind. What does God do? God isn't going to sit there. God is like a good human father, but even greater because He's the heavenly father. And what does He do? A good human father isn't going to allow their kids to run amok. So what does He do? He says, you know what? I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to discipline you and show you and in fact prove to you my godness by giving you over to the things that you wanted so badly. The things I want you to see how bad you can mess yourselves up. And God reveals Himself in that way. Why? Because we see God through the revelation of the consequences of sin. We need to understand that God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And when we reap to things of the flesh, sin, which we've talked about for the last couple of weeks, when we reap, or uh, when we uh, sow to those things, I'm sorry, we will reap destruction. And even within that great principle, we see Almighty God because there is one who has set a parameter who says that we are sowing to wrong things. The Word of God does. And as a result of that, there's a punishment. There's a settled reaction. Look at what happens. He says that He gives us over. The third time we've seen this word, parodidomai, in ten verses, the third time Paul's talked about it, judicial word, we've talked uh, that what it literally meant was the handing over of a prisoner to serve his sentence. God hands us over to serve our sentence. What is our sentence? To live however we want, knowing that in living that way, we incur the wrath of Almighty God. It's a settled reaction. He leaves us to our own decisions, to our own devices, and He lifts the protective hand from us and allows us to reap terrible consequences and sin. The Bible says the due penalty of our perversion just a couple verses before. So what do we do? We live lives, we think thoughts, and do things that are unfit for people made in the image and likeness of God. We literally, one commentator says, we become like animals. 
I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm watching the, the evening news where I sit there and I wonder, how can a person do such things? What possesses an individual to do the things that we hear about so plainly in our news? The Bible says that they're given over to a depraved mind. This word depraved in your text literally means to not pass the test. It was described in Paul's day of a counterfeit coin that looked good but had absolutely zero value when it came to its contents. And this is how Paul describes us as sinful humanity. He says that in, in our sinful state we are absolutely worthless. We're worthless. Because we think we've got everything going on for us, but in fact God has handed us over to a depraved mind. Now maybe you've noticed there's some judging going on. Think about this. Man looks at God, and we look at God, and we do the systematic review of God, and we say, God, you're not worth our time. You're not worth our energy. So what does God do? God says to sinful humanity, well, I'm going to make you worthless. And He pronounces a judgment. So there's a two-way judgment going on. Us saying that God is worthless, and God, in fact, then turning around and saying, we're worthless. The question is, and this is the fundamental question of the whole text, who's right and who's wrong? Either you're right in your assumption about God that He's worthless, or He's right about you in your sinful state and me in my sinful state that we're worthless. It hinges on that. Who's right in their judgment? And the last I remember, the Word of God says that Christ and the Heavenly Father are perfect in their judgment. And last thing I remember what the Bible says about us is that don't trust them. They're a little off. But that's the question you have to answer this morning. If you want to believe that salvation is only found in God, then it means that you must take God's assessment of you instead of your assessment of God. The final thing that we see is once uh, this reaction has taken place, Man responds. What is sinful humanity's response? Do they turn around and say, God, you're right. You're absolutely right. We're worthless. Nope. It's not what happens. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. So what do we do? God reveals Himself. God articulates that we're worthless. And what do we do? We prove him correct. We say you're absolutely right. Why? Because we do the things that we're not called to do. The NAS gives us a, a different translation. It says that we do things that are not proper. The best way to illustrate this is to uh, look at uh, using and you're putting together things this time of the year and it calls for a screwdriver. And what do you do when you can't find a screwdriver? You find a hammer. And you make the hammer work as a screwdriver. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but out of my ignorance and impatience, I've done that. And it never works out the way I want it to. It looked good on paper, but it never finishes the way it's supposed to. Or we take a saw and we use it as a hammer. That's a little harder to do. But that is what is taking place in our reaction. The things that are most proper to be used the proper way, the way God created us, we say we're not going to use it that way. We're going to use it in a different way. The King James Bible talks about we, go, uh, we do not do that which is convenient to do. I believe that's the King James. I may be off. I don't know if the King James would use convenient, but we'll go with it. Uh, everybody, I, 
Aye, okay, it's democracy, okay? Things that are convenient. So what do we do? We go the opposite way, things that are inconvenient. Think about this for a moment. It would be like us saying, well, we need to go pick up a couple items at Jewel. The convenient thing to do is to go a couple hundred yards down the street to pick up the stuff at Jewel. What we've done in humanity is instead of stopping at the Sugar Grove Jewel, we went across the city of Chicago and we found something in Indiana at the same Jewel. And instead of doing what's easy, we went and did something that was difficult. How do we see this happen, this uh, turning what is convenient into the inconvenient when it comes to things that are improper that we do? The text tells us what was natural to us Instead of doing that which was natural, we went the long way around and we found the things that are unnatural. And that's what we do. What comes naturally to us? God created us in the image and likeness of Himself. And we were made and created to worship and praise God and serve God. And that happened for a while in the garden. There was great fellowship. Man walked with God in the coolness of the day. And it was a glorious time. That's what we were created for. Until the devil comes in, he starts messing around and starts tempting the woman and Adam. And he begins to tempt them to say, you know what? Instead of getting it the convenient way, having a great relationship with God, why don't you try to do it the inconvenient way? Try to do it yourself. Because you can become like God. And so what happens? For the rest of human history, instead of bowing the knee to God, humanity has said we are going to do it ourselves. And it's so amazing. Every time we do that, we find trouble. I think of the great story of the Tower of Babel where we create this wonderful thing. Why? Because we want to get to God. We want to create a great city and build a building that we can reach the heavens. That's a difficult process. And little would we have known that if we would have just bowed the knee to God, we wouldn't have had to lay one brick, one level of mortar. But we could see Almighty God because of His righteousness. But what do the people do? They say, we're going to do it ourselves. And story after story of people, instead of bowing the knee to God, doing it the right way, doing it, in fact, if you will, the easy way, the way that we were created to be, we go the inconvenient way, the improper way, and turn from our uh, turn to sin. Well, there's a second thing we see this morning. The second thing is the second reason why we do the evil that we do, and it involves our engaging in depravity that is unthinkable. Look at verse 29 through 31. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. I want to break that up. I've been told that one of the most difficult messages to preach is to deal with a list. Because we don't know exactly why Paul put those in there, but what we understand the most is that what he's doing is just giving us a representation. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not the only list of sins. There's other ones. He doesn't list them. But let's break them down into three groups. Paul tells us that humanity has become filled, first of all, filled with every kind of wickedness. The Greek word for filled there is plerao. Plerao. This phrase literally means to be saturated through and through or to permeate something. 
It says we are filled. We are saturated with sin. Now, plerao was used three ways in Paul's day. First of all, plerao was used to describe how the, uh, how the wind would fill the sail of a boat to allow the boat to move in the sea. So when they would look at the wind, or at the sail and it's full and, and it's grabbing all the wind that it can, they would say, plerao, it's filled. And we're moving in the direction we need to go. The second one that would speak about was in the terms that I understand best, food. And what they would talk about when they would use the word plerao, they would say, when you season meat, make sure that it is filled with seasoning. Why? So that the seasoning will penetrate every ounce of that meat. So we would talk about that in the marinating process, in the seasoning process, that the meat would be filled with seasoning. The final way that plerao was used was to describe an army who had totally dominated or completely controlled their enemy. And what they would say is, is that uh, what has taken place, and the best way to illustrate it in our day, is, is football. And, and the best way to use plerao would be to speak and describe the Bears' victory over the Packers. Total domination. Can I get an Amen. Total domination. That's what Paul is talking about. What he's saying is, is that we have been filled, saturated, we are permeated with this sin. And it involves total control and total domination. But what kind of sins do we deal with? Well, first we see uh, plerao is given in the perfect tense, which means that we are filled with this wickedness and are continual, or we are filled and remain in that state. That at some point we were filled. There was a point in time we were filled with this sin and wickedness. And it continues to be that case today in our sinful state. Well, three things that we see. He says every kind of sin. And it comes from, first of all, an elevated arrogance. An elevated arrogance. How do we get filled with all kinds of depravity? What possesses us to do the things that we do? First of all, we become arrogant. Arrogance is the elevation of who you think you are. Look at what uh, Paul says. He says we're going to turn from God and we're going to go our own way. That is the first step of arrogance. That says, God, I am better than you. God, I have a better way to go than you do. Because I'm smarter than you. Because I know more about who I am than you do. And because of that fact, because of that involvement, what I'm doing is I'm saying, you're less than me, so I will go the route that I want to go. There's an arrogance. Paul says it in the text. He says, first of all, we are filled with such sins as gossip, boasting, we're insolent, we're arrogant, we're, uh, it says, uh, disobedient to our parents, and we're God-haters. Now you say, well, those are all mismatched of, uh, of lists. All of those lists tell us something about who we are. We're prideful. Why do we gossip about one person with others? The realm of gossip happens because we think we're better than someone else. That's where it begins. It begins that we say, hey, let me tell you something about what someone else is doing. As if that you don't have that issue. And you're highlighting, usually with gossip, someone else's fault. Boasting. When you boast, you, what you're doing is you're setting yourself up so that other people will see you. Look at me. Look how great I am. Look at the achievements I've had. 
Arrogance, we've talked about that. Disobedient to parents. Where does this obedience come from? We would say rebellion. I would say arrogance. I was disobedient to my parents because I thought I was smarter than they were. And by the way, people have said that sometimes I say bad things about parents. Parents are smarter than kids. Let's just get amen. How about you, teenagers? Silence. Disobedient to our parents. Why? Because as children, we think we're better. God-haters. Why God-haters? Because God is saying, He is saying, I'm smarter than you. He's saying, I'm better than you. He's saying, don't worship yourself. Worship me. And what does our arrogance say? I hate you. The reason why we hate God in our sinful state is because God is in competition with us. And we're going to level Him because we don't want anybody on the pedestal that we have for ourselves. Next, we see entrenched attitudes. Entrenched attitudes. We go from having an arrogance to now an attitude, something that is a little more systematic. Paul says that we are filled with all wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. He's listing some things. Understand this. When we start to think that we're better than God, that we start to think we're smarter than God, we're going to start thinking that we can do things that even God has said we shouldn't be a part of. There were times in my teenage life where my parents would say, don't do that, Tim. It's going to bring you pain. It's going to bring you suffering. And I'd say, you don't know what you're talking about. You just don't want me to have fun. You just don't want me to go hang out with my friends. And I'd go do those things and I'd get into trouble. Or I would hurt myself. Instead of listening to my parents, I turned on them and did my own thing. Why? Because I thought I was better than them. And that led to certain things that would begin to take place. Instead of being under the protective uh, placement of my parents, I started to think for myself. Instead of doing what my parents said, I would start to do things that I thought were right. And I'll tell you, with a 17-year-old mind, there's a lot of crazy things going on there, and you need a parent to say, don't do this, don't do that. So what happens with us with God? What do we do? We say, God, I don't want to listen to you, so who am I going to listen to? Self. And the Bible says that the heart of man is deceitful and beyond cure. And instead of listening to the only one who has truth, the only one who is right, what do we turn to? We turn to ourselves. And what happens? We are filled with all kinds of wickedness, depravity, greed, and evil. Why? Because that's who we are in our sinful state. So what happens? This evil and this wickedness begin to fill our hearts. And we become angry. And you may say, Tim, I've never murdered. But wickedness in your heart, I said, you've probably at some point or another really wanted to hurt somebody really bad. Well, Tim, I haven't stolen. But you've looked at your neighbor's car. Or you've looked at your neighbor's house or someone else's house. And you've coveted with your eyes and you've said, but boy, wouldn't it be nice to live there. Boy, wouldn't it be nice to have his or her paycheck, his or her spouse, his or her kids. Where does that come from? The depravity in our heart, that attitudes begin to be formed in our minds and our hearts. But you know what? The Bible says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we see one final thing. We go from elevated arrogance. We go from that to entrenched attitudes, what our mind and our hearts are thinking. And we go to evil activities. Out of the overflow of the mouth, um, overflow of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. What you think or what you feel will one day, after a while, after it continues to fill up, it's going to come out somewhere. It's going to come out in an activity. And the Bible says that when we live to those things, things are going to start to happen in our lives. You start thinking wrong thoughts, I'm going to tell you something, you're going to struggle in the physical realm as well. You can't think murderous thoughts, angry thoughts, and not have that be fleshed out against your spouse or your kids or your fellow employees that you work with. It's not that someone just walks in and uh, you think of some of the things that have taken place in our lives. We just a couple weeks ago heard of a story where a man walked into a church in Colorado Springs. What possesses a man to do that? He didn't wake up that Sunday morning and say, I want to go kill some people that are attending a church and also at a youth mission. What happened? He began to be arrogant. That started there. He says, I don't want you, God. Then what does he do? He starts to involve himself in attitudes of evil, thinking about evil, desiring to do evil things. And what happens? One day, it fills up so much that he picks up a gun and he starts waving it around and shooting anybody he can find. How does that work within our world? You say, I'm not going to go out shooting people. You start living absent of God, with, uh, with uh, absence of God in your life. What will happen? You're going to start falling to sins that you never thought. Maybe you'll start looking on the computer at things you maybe shouldn't be looking at. That God has said this is not proper for someone to do. And what happens? You say, well, that's okay. It's going to stop there. And it's not going to bother anybody else until a situation in real life happens. Think about the last major sin. I know all the sins are major, but the one you remember. Think about how it got there. I'll tell you, you didn't wake up that morning saying, I'm going to sin. But it started a long process ago where it started with our arrogance against God. It involved some attitudes where we thought, you know what, I can do whatever I want. And it really doesn't matter. I can even cover it up. And you start to conspire. No one's going to know. And then the activity takes place. It fleshes us out. Our desires flesh themselves out in cheating, stealing, adultery, immorality, murder, anger, violence, you name it. Paul has listed it. And he has said it. He says we are filled with envy, deceit, malice, strife. He says, and this is the one that catches me so, so right between the eyes, we invent ways of doing evil. My parents used to say that about me a lot. I would invent ways of getting into trouble. There were natural ways of getting into trouble, and then there were Tim ways of getting into trouble. We think up ways. The idea here of what Paul is saying is that literally there's a premeditation. How can we become more evil? When the nuclear, or the atomic bomb was made, one of the most profound words that were shared was Albert Einstein's words on the creating of the nuclear, or I'm sorry, I keep saying nuclear atomic bomb. And after the bombing of Hiroshima, what happens? Albert Einstein says, we have invented a way of doing evil that far surpasses all the inventions of evil prior to it. Albert Einstein was no Christian. He was the man whose theory brought together the idea of the atomic bomb. And what happens? He says, we've created evil. We see evil before us. 
Who would have ever thought that people would hijack planes and, and take them and crash them into buildings? We invent ways of doing evil. Who would ever have thought that we would strap a bomb to ourselves and give up our own life for the sake of hatred for the killing of people in, a, in our land? Why would we do that? Because the Bible says we invent ways of doing evil. We're bad. What I wanted to call this series, we're bad to the bone. But we went good, bad, and ugly. So what happens? i got to get moving here. Romans 1.31, we become senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Very quickly, we become, first of all, senseless, morally unlearned. Because of this depravity, we are morally unlearned. Literally, that word senseless means we're unconscious. Unconscious. We are morally uh, out of touch. We're, we're, we're in la-la land. We don't have a clue of what morals are in our lives. That's why we look at our society and we say, what's going on? Because we're a bunch of moral zombies as we walk through this life. This describes, uh, this word senseless, a man who is a fool, who cannot learn the lessons of experience, who refuses to use his mind or brain that God has given him. The person is without insight and understanding and is descriptive. And Paul's description here is unredeemed man's heart. This man has an inability to bring together the facts and make sense out of them. So what does he do? Things that are immoral. Second thing we see is we're spiritually unfaithful as sinful humanity. Paul calls humanity faithless. This literally, uh, a better way to put this would be covenant breakers. Write that somewhere in your outline. To be a covenant breaker, which means men and women do not keep their promises. They break promises, treaties, uh, excuse me, agreements, uh, contracts, when it serves their own purposes. Why do we do the things that we do? Because if it doesn't serve our, uh, our liking, we get rid of it. We say, okay, you know what? This marriage isn't working. You're not doing what I want you to do. So what am I going to do? I'm going to say goodbye to you. And we call that a clean word, divorce. And I know there's a lot of reasons for divorce. Okay? And the Bible even gives biblical reasons for divorce. But 50% of Americans, including Christians, should not be falling to this issue of divorce. But we fall to the sin of humanity. And we say, if it doesn't fit me, all I have to do is say, Sayonara. We're covenant breakers. Look at what he says next. We're heartless. Literally, that means naturally unloving. That means that we are without love for our family members. It is a terrible time when men and women are so focused in on self-gratification to the point that even the closest ties mean nothing to them. Think about that for a moment. There's no better example of this than the sin of abortion. The taking of a life because, well, for whatever reason, it just is not in the plan. So what do we do? We annihilate something within our own bodies. Adultery does that as well. The thing that we should be most loving about is our family. And what do we do because of the gratification that sexual immorality brings us? We pursue things that we shouldn't. And what does it do? It impacts the lives of the closest people we know. We're naturally unloving. 
John MacArthur uh, shares a, a thought on this. He says, Perhaps Dickens had it right in, when he penned the words of the classic epic, A Tale of Two Cities. When he wrote, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. He says, of course, the best of times is only possible when depraved men and women who are living in the worst of times accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and forever are transferred from the city of man, one city, to the city of God. Now listen to what he says. He says, it is not natural for people to love God or the things and the people of God, but it is natural for them to first of all love their own families. Yet to be heartless is therefore to be without natural affection. Just as the self-loving person is without common decency, he is also without common affection. He cares nothing for the welfare of those who should be dearest to him. His only interest in them is for what he believes that they can do for him. To be unloving is to literally be heartless. Unloving behavior is reported daily in newspapers and broadcasts. Husbands and wives abusing one another. Parents to their children. Children towards one another. Oftentimes, even in families to the point of murder, that it is so common that only the headlines are shared because the stories are so particularly brutal or sensational. And he says, yet even within our churches today, there's a spirit of an unloving and heartless heart. He says we are heartless. Well, what does that lead to? It leads to continual, uh, continually being unmerciful. Paul says we're ruthless. This word is used only here in the New Testament and means not to be compassionate. It applies to those who do not feel the distress of others. It would literally be to see someone in a great time of distress and turning the cheek and saying, I'm not going to do anything about it. Let them leave them to their own problem. William Barclay, a great Bible scholar, wrote of this on this word. There was never a time when human life has become so cheap. A slave could be killed or tortured by his master, for he was, the, he was only a thing, and the law gave his master unlimited power over him. In a wealthy household, a slave was bringing in a tray of crystal glasses. He stumbled, and a glass fell and broke. There and then his master had him flung into the fish pond in the middle of the courtyard where the savage lampreys began to devour his flesh. He stood there and laughed as his slave life was taken. Heartless, ruthless, the Bible tells us. It is an age pitiless in every pleasure, he says. For it was the great age of the gladiatorial games where people found their delight in seeing men kill each other. It was an age when the quality of mercy was gone. I don't know about you, but we live in a ruthless age. An age where we want to see as much of that ruthlessness played out until it affects us. But it leads all to one final thing, point number three. And that is our experiencing a future destiny that is unbearable, that will be unbearable. Look at what Paul says. Although they knew God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do the very things, but also approve of those who practice it. Very quickly this morning, three things that take place. First of all, a judgment's coming. The first reason for this destiny of judgment is we continue to practice 
sin. There's a habitual practicing of sin. What happens? God says the wrath of God is being revealed and you are going to receive a due penalty for your perversion. And then he says that the, the uh, penalty is death. And what do we do? We continue to practice what God tells us not to do. There is nothing that makes me more angry as a father than when I tell my sons to do something, especially my oldest one, and he's watching the TV, and I say, turn the TV off. We need to get our shoes on. we got to go. And five minutes later, I walk back in there, and nothing has happened. He continues to live in rebellion. That's what humanity is doing, and that angers God. There is nothing worse than a person in authority who has every right to tell somebody what to do, to articulate a command, and an individual, a subordinate, not to do it. We get angry as parents. We get angry as bosses. We get angry as superiors in in different areas of our life. God has the chief way because He is the chief CEO, if you will. And He has told us what to do. And what do we do? We go and we keep doing what we were told not to do. And I will tell you, it angers me. And I can only imagine in the holiness of that which He lives how much it angers God. But look at what happens next. It also involves a continual praise of other sinners. Of other sinners. Not only do we continue to do the things ourselves, but we give a hearty approval to what others are doing when they practice them. Literally, this word approve means we cheer them on. It literally means that we come and we put someone up here who is uh, involved in murderous thoughts. And he tells us, uh, by the way, I'm so angry with my boss that tomorrow what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a gun and I'm going to end his life. And what do we do as humanity? Bravo. You go get him. Go get him. By the way, make sure you use this gun because that's the way that it will work most effectively. Paul says we don't just do those things, but we heartily cheer those who are engaged in those sins. We approve of them. We cheer them on. Well, what does it lead to? It leads to one final thing. It leads to a problem. It leads to an unbearable penalty for our sins. An unbearable penalty. It says, although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death. Let me make something plain to you. Don't put your Bibles away yet. I'm done. Let me just close with this thought. Paul makes a very simple statement. You have a choice. Your choice is simple. You either bow the knee to the greatness and the wonderful nature of who God is, and you find mercy and grace and salvation from your sins. You can do that. That's a choice. Or the other choice that you can live is you can say, I'm going to keep living my own way. But understand this. This is what God warns us with. He says, in this life that you pursue that is of righteousness, you will reap righteousness. And in righteousness, you'll receive blessing, peace. You'll receive contentment, joy, and love, and the forgiveness of sins. But if you do not do those things, the Bible makes it clear that there is a way that is heavily paved that leads to destruction. And so what happens? Either you pursue the righteousness of God or you pursue the unrighteousness of your sin. And if that is where you're going to go, Paul says it it moves you to destruction. So what do we do? Quite frankly, first of all, if you're a Christian here today, revel in the gospel that has saved you. 
revel in it. And that means that we don't just read the Bible because we have to, but we sit there and say, I was blind, dead, and held captive. Everything, I was a murderer, as a hater. I was insolent. I was disobedient to my parents. And because of that, I was filled with every kind of wickedness. But because of the grace of Almighty God, He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on my behalf, that I would no longer be called a sinner, but I would be called a saint. Rejoice in that gospel. Praise God for that. Because in doing so, then you are revealing the righteousness that comes from God. Let's pray. Father God, what an amazing chapter. Fifteen weeks we've spent looking at this chapter that had a lot of good at the beginning. Your gospel, your son. A wonderful opportunity to hear the good news where we say at the end of that, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God and the power of salvation for everyone who believes. But these last weeks have been difficult for us, even for those who are saved, because there are people in our lives that we know who have never bowed the knee to your son Jesus. And it grieves our heart because we know what your word has said and we know it to be true. And if our name is not found in that Lamb's book of life, that we will be cast into the lake of fire. Father, I have friends, I have family that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you will draw them to yourselves, that you will open their eyes so that they can have salvation. That in their sin they will be able to release themselves from that and bow the knee to Christ Jesus. That Lord, that would be our heart. That this series would sear our hearts once and for all to be reminded that this is not just this life that we live and everybody ends up in the same place at the end of it. But Lord, that we will remember there are two ways after this world. One to heaven and one to hell. One in heaven where there will be joy and bliss and hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let us be reminded of that ever mindful of what happens when we are without Christ. So Lord, change our thinking. Move us away from being so enamored with the world and the unnatural ways that they do things. And let us elevate with all our hearts the Scripture and godly men and women who are living the righteousness that comes and has been revealed from heaven. Let them be our superstars. Let them be our celebrities. Because when we live like them, Paul says, live and follow me as I follow Christ. Let that be what we do. That we would not follow the patterns of this world, but we would follow you in your kingdom. That we would seek you in your kingdom first and the righteousness that comes. We love you for the salvation that you've given us. That you receive all the glory for what has been said today. In Jesus' name, amen.